Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, writers. Welcome to Free MFA. I'm your host, Torre. I did a year in Columbia University's graduate creative writing program back when I was in my 20s. And it had a profound effect on me as a writer. And it helped me build a 25-year career writing novels, nonfiction studies, memoirs, essays, and more. I love writing, and I love writers. Writers are my tribe. They're my kind of people. When I walked into Columbia or when I went to Breadloaf or any situation where I find myself surrounded by writers, I'm like, yeah, this is my fam. So I want to use this show to talk to writers about writing. If you want to hear some of the things I learned in graduate school and in the two-plus decades since, here we go. I'm here to give you a free MFA week by week in small doses. I want to divide this up into four small sections, like four quick little classes. First, a bit of motivation, then a look at a legendary piece of writing and some thoughts on what's so great about it. MFA programs love to walk you through great writing with a microscope. That's one of the best teaching tools they have. So we're going to do a little deconstructing here like they do up there. Third, a tip from one of the great books about writing, like a bit of advice from a visiting author. And fourth, a sentence I love because it all begins with great sentences. The one really effective element of the MFA program that I can't replicate here on the podcast is the crit, the way teachers and other students read your work and give you notes on what you did well and mostly on what you did wrong. Man, that could be hard, but everyone develops friends who they trust so they can get that hard feedback from someone who they know is coming from a good place. If you want to get better as a writer, find someone you can share your work with who will give you smart, tough, but loving criticism. If you want the person critiquing your work to be me, Go to torrebookcoach.com or email me at bookcoach at and we can talk about it. Okay, let's get into it. I want to start with a little motivation. And let me build that with a story about Kanye. Yeah, that Kanye. In 2004, Kanye was promoting his debut album and Rolling Stone magazine sent me to go do a feature on him. I went to his apartment in New Jersey in a high-rise, but he was on a middle floor because he wasn't anywhere near as big as he is now. He was a growing artist who was new to fame. When I got to his place, he was still getting dressed. It took him an hour to get dressed. Like, which polo shirt? Ugh! So while he was contemplating, I was walking around his apartment. Off in the corner, on a wall, there was a giant poster of Kanye. It took up the whole wall. It was a photo of him in performance on stage, mouth wide open, yelling into a mic. I was like, what? He has a poster of himself on the wall in his house? What? So later, when he finally came out, I said, okay, so uh, what's up with the poster of you on the wall? And he said something brilliant. He said, 
I have to cheer for me before anyone else can cheer for me. Now, within that, we can see the roots of the egomaniacal Kanye that we know today, but we also see a young artist building up his confidence manually. We see an artist saying, I have to be the first to take myself and my work seriously. That's critical for writers. You have to take your work seriously before anyone else will. And for me, the most important and telling manifestation of that is in how we approach our writing time. you got to plan out your writing time like it's a meeting with an important client, but the client is you and your book. And we have to protect our writing time. Don't let other people interrupt it. Don't let the internet take you away from your book. Zadie Smith says, write on a computer with the internet disabled so you don't waste time going down rabbit holes that have nothing to do with your book. Protect your writing time. Don't let phone calls and texts and TV shows eat away at your time. If your book matters to you, then the time to work on it has to be important to you. When I'm in book mode, I miss birthday parties, big sporting events, all kinds of things. I don't feel guilty because I know real friends will understand. My book has to be the most important thing in the world to me before anyone else can care about it. Look, Unless your book deal is so big that you don't need to work, and those sorts of deals are rare nowadays, then you're going to need to keep a normal job while you write your book. So you're going to have to make some time sacrifices in order to get it done. So when you carve out that writing time, make it more important than anything. Protect that time zealously. Distractions abound. Reasons to procrastinate are everywhere. The struggle is real. But you got to push yourself to say no to everything in the world and yes to your writing. Okay, part two. Writing schools love to give you a great piece of writing and then go through it with a microscope so you can see how it works. This is probably the best tool they have to help people become better writers. So I want to go through a bit of one of my favorite essays of all time, Joan Didion's Goodbye to All That from 1967, where Didion talks about being a 20-something California girl living in New York and moving from looking at the city with love in her eyes to viewing the city with disgust and growing from a hopeful naif to someone who needed to move back to California so badly she was having panic attacks. In the middle of the piece, she writes, quote, I was in love with the city the way you love the first person who ever touches you and never love anyone quite that way again. I remember walking across 62nd Street one twilight that first spring or the second spring. They were all alike for a while. I was late to meet someone, but I stopped at Lexington Avenue and bought a peach and stood on the corner eating it and knew that I had come out of the West and reached the mirage. I could taste the peach and feel the soft air blowing from a subway grating on my legs, and I could smell lilac and garbage and expensive perfume, and I knew that it would cost something sooner or later because I did not belong there, did not come from there. But when you are 22 or 23... You figured that later you will have a high emotional balance and be able to pay whatever it costs. Wow. Didion does so many wonderful things in that short bit, but notice how she hits us with the word love five times in the first two sentences, evoking the obsessiveness you feel when you're drunk in love. And then she deepens it by giving us a sharp visual reference for the specific sort of love she's talking about. She was in love with the city the way you love the first person who touches you. 
We all know that sweet, deep, pure, innocent, overwhelming feeling of first love. Didion felt that for New York, and I could feel her heart full of the city. I was like that when I was in my 20s in New York, so Didion's being very specific about herself, but it makes me feel like she's also talking about me. When she drops into an anecdote, into imagery, it's exciting. I love when writers paint mental pictures with words. Didion shows us young Joan standing on a corner, eating a peach, and she hits us with a string of great details. The soft air blowing from a subway grating, the smell of lilac and garbage and expensive perfume, and there's a point to these details. She's showing us how naive she was. She's in the middle of New York City, swooning over the air from the subway, which is probably dusty and dirty. She loves New York so much, she puts the smells of lilac and expensive perfume in the same list as the smell of garbage. She's portraying through details the wonder she felt as a kid in New York City. And that's the thrust of the piece. The details aren't here to just show you what she looks like. They are a look at the world through the specific eyes of the character, so much that they advance the narrative thrust of the piece. It's so much more powerful that way. As we segue into part three, advice from a great author, I want you to notice that in Didion's description, she never describes the way she looks or really anything about herself beyond how the experience felt to her. This is important. Nothing is absolute, but usually writers don't spend much time describing what characters look like. Here's a bit of advice from one of the great writers of our time, Stephen King. And no matter what you think of his novels, he's extraordinarily successful. And his book about writing, on writing, it's fantastic. King says, quote, I'm not particularly keen on writing which exhaustively describes the physical characteristics of the people in the story and what they're wearing. I find wardrobe inventory particularly irritating. If I want to read descriptions of clothes, I can get a J. Crew catalog. I can't remember many cases where I felt I had to describe what the people in a story of mine looked like. I'd rather let the reader supply the faces, the builds, and the clothing as well. If I tell you that Carrie White is a high school outcast with a bad complexion and a fashion victim wardrobe, I think you can do the rest, can't you? I don't need to give you a pimple-by-pimple, skirt-by-skirt rundown. We all remember one or more high school losers, after all. If I describe mine, it freezes out yours. I lose a little bit of the bond of understanding I want to forge between us. Description begins in the writer's imagination, but it should finish in the reader's. That is great advice. We don't need to be specific about how the characters look. The human mind will fill that in if you give readers enough clues. Going back to Didion, she told me she was young and naive and hopeful. So I see her on that corner eating a peach while wearing a bright yellow sundress that's sweet and appropriate and probably brighter than anything around her in the gritty Big Apple. I see her in a yellow sundress even though she never said anything about her clothes. Because as King said, description begins in the writer's imagination and finishes in the reader's. You're putting a story into people's minds. You're incepting them, but let them do some of the work. Don't over-describe. Be economical. That sense of being economical and having the awareness that the human mind will automatically fill in details if you give it the space to do so, that 
is at the heart of the last element of today's class, a look at an amazing sentence, because all great writing is built on great sentences. And this is one of my favorite sentences in all of literature, and it includes the best parenthetical phrase in literature history. Please direct your attention to page 10 of what might be the greatest novel of the 20th century, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. This famous sentence comes early in our story when our narrator Humbert Humbert is telling us about his past, showing us a bit of why he's become a monster. He says, quote, My very photogenic mother died in a freak accident. Picnic, lightning, when I was three. And save for a pocket of warmth in the darkest past, nothing of her subsists within the hollows and dells of memory, over which, if you can still stand my style, I am writing under observation, the sun of my infancy had set. Surely you all know those redolent remnants of day suspended with the midges about some hedge in bloom or suddenly entered and traversed by the rambler at the bottom of a hill in the summer dusk, a furry warmth, golden midges. Wow. Notice how he honors the directive we've been talking about to not over-describe characters. He says his mom is photogenic, which is a really rich, poetic way to say she's beautiful without giving any specifics so any reader can imagine her looking any way they want. Now, of course he thinks she's beautiful. She's his mother. So that goes to the characterization through detail that we saw with Didion. The reader also has room to fill in a lot around the story of her death, about which Nabokov says just picnic, comma, lightning. That's amazing. And with just that pithy description, I can see it. The red and white blanket spread out, the wicker basket, the grass, the trees, the lady sitting sideways with a long skirt gathered under her, and then the long, skinny, yellow finger of electricity stretches down out of the sky and zaps her to death. She falls down, and all hell breaks loose, and poor little Humbert is never the same. Part of why this character does not describe this and her any further is because he's talking about an event he does not recall. Again, the description fits and builds character. It's particular to who's giving it because we all see the world a little differently, and writers use detail to further explain the person who's viewing it. This, Humbert indicates, is the beginning of the end for him as a normal person. His mom has died right in front of him, and thus the sun of his infancy has set. What an amazing visual phrase that fits both the outdoorsy setting and the importance of mother to a young child. Mom is the sun of your world when you're little. She's the center. She's the warmth. She's the thing around which you revolve. Also notice how mom drifts away as the sentence goes on. It begins squarely focused on her, but after he says she's died and he's forgotten her, nothing of her subsists within the hollows and dells of memory, which turns memory into a place I feel like I can see. After that, he stops talking about her in the sentence which mimics her disappearing from his life and his mind as he begins his descent into insanity. Okay, that's our class for today. Thanks so much for listening to Free MFA. Please leave a review and tell the writers in your life about the show. If you want to work with me on your book, you can email me at bookcoach at or go to my site, 
torebookcoach.com, and we could talk about working together to make your book great. And don't miss my other podcast, Torre Show, where I interview people about success. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 